Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week we're taking a sneak peek inside the working day of Lucy Whitehouse. Her brand new book, Critical Incidents, is out right now and for her it's quite a momentous one because in it she's made the shift from psychological crime to more procedural crime. Uh, So we'll talk about why that's such a big deal. Also you can hear why she loves the buzz of women-only working spaces and why for her it's there that she needs to go to get her work done. And you can also hear why to start writing she needed just a little bit of free time and a little bit more booze. I started writing because I was just fed up with my own prevarication. So I bought a bottle of dessert wine, locked myself in the garden and said you can't come in until you have three pages. And uh, they were terrible but uh, I didn't allow myself to stop until I'd written 30,000 words because that felt like so much that uh, it would be psychologically painful to put that in the bin and that was a way to get myself over the hurdle of how do I start on something so huge. So stick around, there's more from Lucy Whitehouse on the way in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, thank you so much for giving us a listen. My name is Dan Simpson. This is Writer's Routine. Uh, If you've heard the show before and you like what we do, if it's given you some help with your work, if you've enjoyed the top tips we've had from the writers over the last, what, 60 episodes or so, or if you are new to the show, if you've only just started listening because you saw our recommendation, fantastic, in Red Magazine. Did you see this? Uh, A national magazine listed us as one of the best book podcasts in the UK. Uh, Thank you so much to them for putting that out. If you've just found us because of that, or if you've been with us for a while, I'd really love for you to leave Writer's Routine a review over on Apple Podcasts. I promise it takes barely two seconds of your time. Just write a few words telling other people why you enjoy the show. Then they can find us through the podcast store and it helps a load more budding writers get the help and the advice from some of the most successful ones out there. Now, this week, uh, we're talking about the writing routine of Lucy Whitehouse. Uh, She was born in Gloucestershire, she went to Oxford, and now she lives in Brooklyn. And you can imagine writing in Brooklyn, the vibrant energy that you just pick up walking around the city. And we hear why she needs that city, she needs the streets, she needs to leave the house to tell her story, and she needs to go to a women's-only working space to get her words down. That really helps her out. And you can find out why during the chat. Now, her new book is Critical Incidents. It's the fifth book that she's published. Uh, It's based on D.I. Robin Osborne, who is going home. 
and her best friend Karina's family is engulfed by violence when she's there and Robin has to get involved to make sure that the job is done right and for um, Lucy it marks quite a change for her. When I was sent an email by the publisher to say, do you want to interview Lucy? Uh, She's just made the move to procedural crime writing and I didn't really understand what a shift that was. But I think amongst thriller and crime authors in that community, it is quite nuanced. So this is a really big deal. You can hear more about it in just a sec and find out why writing procedural crime is pretty different to writing psychological thrillers during our chat. Also, you can hear about how the very first idea for this book appeared to her almost out of nowhere. Like the flash of a light bulb, it just clicked on inside her mind. I know that's probably the case for pretty much all stories. Most of the ideas that we have come from nowhere. But for Lucy, it was a little bit different in that the whole thing came almost fully formed. She knew almost every aspect about her protagonist without really being made aware that she was even thinking of it. You can find out how that works in a little bit as well. And you can also hear how her writing routine has changed over five books. We'll also get a top writing tip from a rom-com author in the middle. I'll also read out some of your advice as well so make sure you stick around for that first let's get into it with lucy whitehouse uh, starting as always with what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write that has recently changed um until uh last year i was working at a, a brilliant uh, a, br- a brilliant women's uh writing collective in brooklyn which was in a kind of semi semi derelict building uh the writer's space was called powder keg and the room was an old loft space in a in an old bank um and we all had our own desk none nothing matched there were wires hanging from the ceiling um for three months last year we didn't have um running water but we did have a full-size wooden model horse mexican (laughs) um and a chinese dragon's head um and lots of we had disemboweled wurlitzer jukeboxes and all sorts of things but then we lost our water supply so I had to move Um, but I am now incredibly spoilt because my writer's space is the writer's studio at the new center for fiction in Brooklyn which I thoroughly thoroughly recommend people visit when they when they're next in town Um, the the center for fiction is exactly uh, what it sounds like it's the most beautiful new uh, fiction collection um, and they have a dedicated writer's space uh, with 20 desks in. And uh, it's it's the complete opposite of the of the Chinese dragon's head and the, the electrical threats. <laughs> well, that opens up two things for me. Firstly, um, a woman-specific writing space. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm very conscious that I'm asking you this as, as a white man, but um, w- why a w- women-only writing space? And what energy did that bring to your storytelling, do you think? Uh, women, uh, women's only. Um, the two founders, Holly and Sharon. Sharon is a news journalist, and Holly's a documentary maker. Uh, they founded it to have somewhere to work when they could no longer work at home when they had children, and it grew from that. Um, and I think they just kept it that way because they found a nice group of women, and it's a very supportive. Um, place and it kind of clears out at the picking up time for school which <laughs> is, uh, which tells you everything you need to know really but uh, it was a very supportive um, it was a very supportive atmosphere and lots of those women um, there's there's some wonderful women in that space Susan Choi for example who's whose new book Trust Exercise just come out it's wonderful 
um, and Mira Jacob, uh, good talk. They um, they worked there, so it was a really great, energetic, supportive space, um, and lots of great friendships. And I think that um, it's an, I mean, it helped for me hugely to to just have have women who knew exactly what I was doing and had all the. I have a six year old daughter, and uh, to have people who knew exactly the difficulty of trying to concentrate while also being a present mother is uh, was very useful to me at a time when I moved from the UK and was separated from you know, my friends and family here. So it was personal and professional. It was great. And yeah, I mean, it's notable that you're out of the house at this point. I don't yeah. speak to too many authors who very rarely write out of the house. Most of them mm. do 80% of their work at mm. home. It's half mm. the benefit of being an author. <laughs> Why don't you stay at home? Why do you feel the need to go out? I like to go out because otherwise, well, it, make, it, helps, me, it helps me have a kind of more balanced life. Um, otherwise, I think the temptation when you're at home is to feel like all the domestic things that you have to do get in the way um so I just put a load of laundry on what are we going to have for dinner and you know when you when you have a, a kind of more traditional job you don't have to think about those things as you go to your office and that's it um and that really helps with the the mental division um between the two just being physically removed from that sphere um also I mean I quite a sociable person um and though i really need to be on my own um to write i do also like to come out and chat and it's nice to have i mean i think the the center for fiction is ideal for that because nobody talks in the writer's space but there's camaraderie at lunchtime so when you're when you're having your lunch you can have that little bit of social interaction um, and there is zero possibility of writing in your pyjamas which <laughs> which I do not do anyway um, because I am somebody who can sit down at 8 o'clock in the morning to, to write and then find that it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon and you know, I just don't like being in my pyjamas at 3 o'clock in the afternoon So, so it sounds like this process, the way you write at the moment mm. has, has almost been learned uh, through years through novels uh, tell me about the moment if you can that you realized that you probably couldn't stay working in, in a house anymore you would need to go outside what was it what was that tipping point that made you need to leave the home uh, two things uh, the first was uh, when I moved from England to America uh, my husband's a writer too um, he's a screenwriter um, and there, when we when we first moved, we were both used to working in our own spaces, and suddenly there were two of us there, uh, and it that felt strange because we both liked the private mental space to write, and we we share we share work quite a lot with each other. We we read each other's work, and we have kind of different strengths, so it's a very useful thing. But it did feel incredibly isolating when I first moved to uh, first moved to America to just be in a house with one person and also be married to that person. Very claustrophobic. <laughs> I just needed to be out. So that was a contributory factor. And then also when my daughter was little, you know, she needed the house and uh, and I quite liked going out and having some kind of adult time now she's six so it's it's different she's at school but you definitely writing's very personal and you just need a sense of you know the room of your own is is a big thing 
you spoke about not wanting to be in your pajamas at three o'clock in the <laughs> afternoon. Do you find that you know getting dressed up for work, heading out for work, does that help you tell your story? Does it allow you to possibly get down to brass tacks a lot more than lounging around in your pajamas would do? Um, I don't know. Um, certainly think it's it's mentally healthy. It's so it really depends. I mean, on the rare occasions now, I mean always before, but um, on the rare occasions now where I just have uninterrupted days, you know, the time becomes very fluid. And if I'm if I'm really writing hard and into it, then you know days vanish, um, and they're a lot less structured. But it's you know having a having a smallish child you have to be quite structured and I think that's something that I found really fascinating at the women's writer space is that people doing really excellent work in business hours so there's none of that none of the kind of romance of you know up late uh, with a bottle of wine and kind of semi-nocturnal kind of lifestyle. I was like, no, I have from nine till two. And that is, that is when I'm working today. And the work is just as good. There's two versions. There's the structured and then there's the, aha, I, ha- I, have, I have two days uninterrupted. Uh, the, day-to-day, the day-to-day versions, um, American schools start quite early. So my, my daughter's on the school bus by 7.45. Um, and then I am up and at the writer's space by nine, having done a few um, a few sort of practical organizational things beforehand. Um, and then I do my social media looking and try not to fall down a news rabbit hole, which is really difficult in the age of, Trump I have to say so I I have I am I find news quite all absorbing with Trump and Brexit I find it the reverse of you as in I find it really easy to not be dragged down a a news wormhole because I just don't go near it because it's just so bleak that it's just so easy for me Um, anyway sorry carry on yes with the uh, I have found that too in the last few weeks since since the uh, summary of the Mueller report was released where I've just had a, I can't <laughs> um, but yes yeah, so at work um, I usually start by rereading what I wrote the day before making some small edits and that uh, gets me back in the groove um, and I try I try to write sort of always aim for a thousand words a day I find my comfort level when I'm really in the groove is about 12,000, uh, 1,200, God, 12,000, uh, 1,200 words. words Envious cries from writers all over the world <laughs> listening yes, to this. 12,000 words. <laughs> uh, yeah, 1,200 words. Um, and uh, I read somebody the other day saying they, they wrote 6,000 words in a day. I've never done that. Um, uh, but I am finickety for sure. I, I edit a lot. Um and uh, I'm sure, I'm sure there's lots of uh, certainly my editor and agent wished that I wrote faster. But this is, I'm afraid this is it. So yes, I work. I try to be, I try to be disciplined about eating lunch. But I quite often find that my best working hours are between eleven and two. Um, and then after that, um, you know, I have a very late lunch and mess up dinner schedules. And why do you think that, that is eleven and two? What? Why do you think that's when you're most productive? I don't know. I think it's because the brain is awake, properly awake by 11. I have found, actually, and I don't know whether it's practical 
just because I have to these days or because, you know, your body and brain change as you get older. So I'm now 43. Um, it used to be that I was much more of an afternoon and night person. But now I, I find sort of if I can be at work and working by 9.30, I can, I can get a lot done by 2. I can, can think that that is a sort of full creative day's work by by two which is it's fascinating I'm very interested in this question of you know how um, you know all the kind of rules you make for yourself when you have no rules can easily be broken when you have to do them did did you find in in that in your time at work and then in those three really concentrated hours from Mm. 11 till 2 are you working in fits in bursts in starts or are you just plowing through getting as much done as you can it depends on an ideal day when I have pure concentration then I just write for three hours and just keep going barely stand up sometimes make a cup of coffee um but uh generally if i'm if i'm really into it particularly if i'm writing dialogue and you know i can it's like watching a tennis match yeah. and kind of in it and hear hearing the the dialogue then i i try not to break it um a friend of mine katie darby um who's a wonderful writer um she writes excellent short stories and she sometimes says that she has to write a short story all in one go um, because it's like a one night stand that you, you can't come, you can't come back to it. It's not the same, you know. The the bubble is burst, um, which I've always I've always loved that. And I I do find that if I'm writing a scene, if I can get that flow, then I I try not to break it. The, the um, phrase listening to the dialogue, mm-hmm. like it, you, you're almost a fly on the wall. You're a bystander to that conversation. That's fascinating. I've never heard that on this before. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you finish work about two o'clock. Uh, I stopped for lunch about two, uh, two days a week. Um, I have I have to stop by three thirty, um, and the other three days a week I work till five. When you've finished at five or two thirty, is is that it for the day, or do you find yourself going back perhaps at night to make little tweaks? Is it always churning over in your head? It's always churning, um, and also um, because my husband's a writer, we quite often talk. So, so what what were you doing today? So I've I've got this plot issue. What do you think about X? Uh, so we have kind of story conference in the kitchen when we're making dinner quite often, which is a treat. Um, and but yes, it's my stories are always just in my head constantly. Um, and I do find that, that when I'm really in the flow of something, everything that I see around becomes relevant. It's like living in a hyper alert, hypersensitive. Um, state that um, I don't know whether it's because the brain is tuned in or because there's some kind of benign uh, benign energy in the world which I don't you know, don't really believe but it feels like that sometimes that you know you you hit a kind of creative groove and it's things arrange themselves to help you and that's when you write the good stuff I quite often find that um, I, I quite often find that the stuff that I wrote in a kind of almost kind of unconscious um, way, if I have one of these three or four hour stints where I don't stand up even to make a cup of coffee, often stuff comes that I didn't know was going to come. And it's often the best stuff that doesn't need editing. And I'm just constantly in search of that, of that wavelength. My old workspace, I had my own desk. And so I had 
things on there that you know I brought in and accumulated and it got messier and messier as deadline um, drew nearer stacks of paper um, but at the Centre for Fiction it's hot desking so you just have whichever desk you uh, you choose out of the ones that are free by the time you arrive. Um, and that that's a very interesting thing, because I thought I would hate it, but actually I don't. Um, it's very, uh, it's, it feels very clean um, that you go and you start with a clean desk, which is not an experience that I've ever had <laughs> before. Um, so I, do, I actually quite like that. Um, but I'm a big notebook user so that's like my portable portable environment that you know I can dive into my notebooks well if I were to dive into your notebook what would I see uh, is it just a, a scattered gun approach to ideas random words placed here and there is there any logic to it there's no there's no logic it's um I have I have two notebooks I have one for um uh, one kind of working notebook where I sometimes find that writing by hand um, if I'm stuck or struggling to work out something, I quite often write by hand, and that seems to access a different part of the brain. Um, and I've found that a really useful technique. Um, but I also have a sort of more general ideas book, which is little things that um, occur to me here and there, or something I see, or also things I've cut out of newspapers um, and things I've collected. Um, just interesting things, uh, strange, there's no real kind of logic to it. Just, um, I read a brilliant thing um, in Deborah, Deborah Levy's, it's not The Cost of Living, the first one of her, the first one of her trilogy of living autobiographies. Um, and she refers to her writer's notebook as um, like a police detective, so like making, making notes on a case, but she doesn't know even what the case is. <laughs> Um, and she says that years later she go, she went back to the notebook and realised that she'd been collecting notes for a novel that she'd written in between. And I thought, yes, that is exactly right. Because I went back to one of my old notebooks um, that I, I unpacked a box that I hadn't looked in for, for a while. And it was like being transported back into my head at the time that I'd written before we met, which was uh, my book before last. Um, so it's, it's fascinating. I love that kind of in the police detective's notebook. Yeah. So aside from the notebook, let's talk about planning then and, and, mm. and plotting. Does it exist in a in a formal way? Is there a physical version of your plan or is mm. it just all in your head? Are you using something on your laptop maybe? Um, I don't use any programs. When I wrote my first book, I didn't plot at all. Um, I started with a very um, kind of loose idea of an atmosphere and a house and three characters. And then I started writing because I was just fed up with my own prevarication. So I bought a bottle of dessert wine, locked myself in the garden and said, you can't come in until you have three pages. And uh, they were terrible, but uh, I didn't allow myself to stop until I'd written 30,000 words because that felt like so much that uh, it would be psychologically painful to put that in the bin and that was a way to get myself over the hurdle of how do I start on something so huge um, but then that book evolved over the course of six years where I was writing and cutting and chipping it felt a bit like sculpture in a way that you were just chipping I knew there was something in there but it was a, I it was a very inefficient way of finding out what it was um, 
But these days, I do plot, and I think that's that's partly being more professional um, and learning that to write the kind of intricate books that I want to write. You know, pre-planning is just it, it's really really helpful to to. I think when I started writing, I I wrote thinking I wanted. I want to kind of this is the story that I want to tell and now when I write I think this is the experience that I would like my readers to have and it's it's a it's a, a different mindset but uh, I want to design I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A book that feels thrilling and surprising and um, intricately structured because I really admire people who do that well and it is really satisfying. So that is what I'm aiming for. And so I do plot. How so. thorough is the, is the plotting then? If, if I were to see your plot, what would it look like? Is there bullet points for every chapter? You know exactly where your tale is going? Uh, mm, yes and no. Um, I started plotting by really because my when I when I met my husband and um, because he's a screenwriter um, he was always talking about he talks about structure in a very kind of formal way and that was one of the first things we talked about when we when we were out um, the first few times we, we talked about story structures the nerdiest nerds <laughs> um, but uh, yeah it was it was fantastic but uh, then he said, oh, yeah, the end of Act 1 and breaks and tent poles and um, I was like, what is this jargon that you're, you're talking? Um, whereas for me, I, I stories felt organic when I started writing, that you just kind of intrinsically knew through years of reading and perhaps something kind of just deeply embedded and human Um about what feels like a satisfi satisfying story, you know, where things have to happen, how things feel intrinsically balanced. Um, but really, uh, storytelling um, for screen 
it's just a mapping of that. And if you try and write a story in a, in a different way, it does fall back to that structure quite often. And I found it helpful to think about that in a, in a conscious way rather than sort of just relying on my instinct to go. But to answer your question, um, I start by drawing um, a graph. That, uh, Sid Field, the, the writer of screenplay, has the three-act structure with the, the central temple of the, the big event at the, the middle, and I have my story in my mind, and I see if it roughly corresponds to that. So I know it's a bit like putting a tent up, that you have the right structure, and then you're free within that um, to be creative, um, knowing that you know, you're probably not going to write yourself off down a complete dead end and uh, waste months and months of work um, or just suddenly find a character, you know, going rogue, um, which has happened to me in the past. And I think you have to allow them to, to go rogue because, you know, you know your characters much better when you finish than when you start. So it's a, mi it's a mixture. But after I've done, after I've done the kind of rough kind of series of events, then I write a sort of a narrative summary for myself of, I mean, sometimes quite detailed, but it's not set in stone. It's more of a guide than a kind of prescriptive order. On a practical level, um, when you turn up at, at your workspace every mm -hmm. morning, how do you know what you're working on that day? I know where I left off the day before and I do the little bit, little bit of editing as I mentioned um but I've, I've generally been thinking about it overnight um thinking about thinking about what's coming next um and so kind of rehearsing the conversations in my head a little bit and thinking about locations and so i i don't think my brain ever really switches off from it so it's just start start by reading reading the last bit and then try and find the flow and hope for the best. I'd love your writing tip, by the way. I know the show is mainly dedicated to advice from the most successful writers that I can find, um, and that could be you. If you've got a, a bit of advice that has really helped you get through the day, if you've got a little tip, a little trick that really helps get your stories out and iron them down onto paper, I'd love to hear it. You can let me know what it is and I will share it on the show. Tell me at writersroutine.com. Uh, that's what Mark in Manchester has done. Nice bit of alliteration in your name there, Mark. Uh, write every day that's what he says uh, it helps if it's at the same time every day because then you get into the habit but just make sure that you write every day no matter what it is get it out there get your story told make it part of your routine i mean mark you could kind of distill the last what two years of my life doing this show and the last 60 episodes of our podcast into that very simple quick line make writing every day part of your routine I don't know if that's helpful or not. Uh, thank you anyway, Mark. Also to Cleo, who is hot desking over in Milan. Uh, brilliant. Nice way to get your work done, travelling around the world. Cleo says, edit as you go. Because you find that you pick up tropes and ticks that you have as you write. And it helps you tell your story cleaner and get your ideas onto the page leaner. I completely understand that, Cleo. Make sure you cut and trim the fat as you're working so you're constantly learning and you can make your story the best it can be, really, by the time you finish telling it. 
Uh, Cleo, Mark, thank you so much for your tips. If you've got a little bit of writing advice that's really helped the way that you get your stories down, I'd love to hear about it and I'd really want to tell it on the show. Hi, I'm Vary McFarlane. Uh, my book is Don't You Forget About Me. Um, and my tip is, I'm kind of sharing this tip a little bit with Joss Whedon because I read that he once said it, but I found it so true. Um, if you've got scenes in whatever you're writing, be it a book or a script, and they're scenes you particularly look forward to writing, just crack on and write them. Don't do, I think you use the analogy of you don't have to save your dessert till last. Um, if you feel fired up to write something, don't tell yourself you have to start chronologically and hack through. Get get something that's really inspiring you written and down, and then you can always move back and start at the beginning after that. Now, if you missed Vari last week and you want to hear more tips from her and learn loads about her brand new rom-com book, Don't You Forget About Me, you can. She's got some pretty biting views over what makes a rom-com novel, what needs to be in something to make it funny, and also why we need to be more honest about how contrived storytelling really has to be Uh, you can hear all that you can catch up with the show we've got 60 of them there that you can listen to and that's where you can send me your writing tip as well get to writersroutine.com let's get back to it then talking to lucy whitehouse in this half of the chat we talk about procedural crime how it's different from psychological thriller and the process of getting an idea like that down onto the paper and having to tie up all the loose threads because when you're writing procedural crime it has to be full of that really procedure You need to make sure that you get everything right. That if a crime is committed, if it's going to be investigated by the police, the way it's investigated really needs to be accurate uh, to lend your ideas and your creativity really any credence. Uh, We also talk about how much she knows her characters and the fact that she's just started writing a brand new series. uh, What more she's got left to find out about them. How much there is a grey area. How much she voluntarily didn't find out the whole package everything about her character because she wanted some stuff to work with along the way and we pick things up talking about her brand new book it's critical incidents and the very first idea that she had for it this was a strange one um because uh this for me is uh, a slight departure because my first four books were psychological suspense and this is uh more literary crime um, well, very quickly before you carry on, um, the, uh, when I was having a discussion with your publisher, and one of the questions that he, he kind of pushed to me, he said, well, you know, Lucy has worked in psychological thriller, now this is more procedural. Mm. Uh, how big of that is a change? Uh, for those who maybe aren't familiar with crime as a genre, mm. Mm. how drastic is that a shift? In it's, both in terms of reading and writing? Um I think if you enjoyed my previous books, you would enjoy this one too, because there's there's definitely a large overlap. Um, and my investigative character, Robin Lyons, um, in this, um, she at the and in book one, um, she has been um, fired by the Met, and so is working as a private investigator back in her hometown of Birmingham. Um, so she's not she's not within a traditional police structure, although she brings her skills of fifteen years experience to bear on that. But a lot of what happens in the book is personal too. So it's it's I would say it's halfway between the two. In in the second book of the trilogy, she is a police officer again. Um, in terms of the writing, I think the difference is that this book is a lot less claustrophobic 
somehow. I think with psychological suspense, a lot of the uh, a lot of the the reading and the writing of it is the fear um, and the the sense of kind of encroaching dread, um, and that is not in this book. Um, I wanted to the reason for the shift. Um, so I wanted to write something that felt broader. I wanted to talk more about. Um, issues that I think about all time in my daily life. There's not, it is personal for sure, but there's also issues in here of racism and um, poverty, and these uh, these are things that I I wanted to think and write about. Um, and those aren't necessarily things that would be so much. Oh, would be so easy to explore in psychological suspense, which tend to be more domestic and personal, I think. So you had that idea, uh, this is what I want to do. Mm. Then how did that translate into a, in, in, into the, the formation of a plot? What was the very first essence of this actual story rather than just the ideas of your intention? The, it was a very strange genesis for this book. Um, normally I've started off with an atmosphere and characters and a place. With this one, um, I have a friend who works in TV and she said to me, um, do you have an idea for a recurring central investigative female character? And I said, yes, I really want to write a book about a woman who is a detective in London, gets fired and moves back to her hometown of Birmingham. And it came out of my mouth with no with no I had no awareness I'd ever had that thought so, 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 so you're saying I've always wanted this but you had no idea I had that you had no that. idea um and I think that the Birmingham the Birmingham part of it came because in 2014 which was the year before I was asked this question my father died um and he was born in Birmingham and uh, has a had a small family um, engineering business that was that you can trace back in Birmingham for since Victorian times we've got adverts from but he we my family's since moved slightly out of Birmingham um, and he was the great kind of keeper of the kind of Birmingham history side of our family and when with him going I felt like it was slipping away and I suddenly thought oh you know here's my subconscious saying don't lose sight of this this is where you come from go back and investigate and it's it's pretty much what she does in the book she goes back she thinks she has memories of growing up in Birmingham um and has kind of one kind of set of views about it and then goes back as an adult and finds that it's a totally different city um and that she'd been wrong but it was that uh, the kind of interweaving of place and person is kind of one of my huge preoccupations in my writing, and I think that's where this one came from. So you've got this notion that you didn't have any idea that you had that you want to write about um, a, a female de- uh, p- a detective who's just been fired. She goes back home. Then what happens as a writer? Then what do you do? You've got that little elevator pitch. How does that then become a four hundred page novel? Well, slowly is is the answer to that. Um, it uh, yes, it does. It does. It comes slowly. I have. Um, I kind of. I sit down and I think about the story I want to tell and the story that would be interesting to read, um, and the things that interest me. And it's quite often going back to the idea of a, 
a detective's notebook you know i i see themes in the in the ideas that i've been collecting and i i know that you know this is something i want to talk about and i think in the case of this book the fact that my father died and the business the f family business that we've had for a while it's now run by my cousins um one of the, one of the ideas of the book is what happens when a family business that's been going for generations suddenly goes bankrupt um, and what what does that mean in terms of the fallout for that family um, and happily that has not happened to our family business and my cousins are doing a good job um, but it, it it was an interesting idea so that was one strand that went in um, I'm always fascinated in relation uh, in relationships about trust and what how much you know and how much how much you can ever trust anybody it's obviously a, a big question of psychological suspense but it's also about knowing people but then finding something un unknowable or unknown about them that fascinates me too I think part of it one of the very important characters in this book is uh, Robin's daughter she's a single mother and her daughter's now 13 um, and I, having since having had since having a daughter of my own, that that relationship has completely transfigured the way that I think of um, think of the world. I mean, it's not too extreme to say it's really added another dimension to my understanding of of things. And uh, I wanted to write about that, but coming with the uh, coming with the idea of my main character's relationship with her daughter is also her relationship with her mother. Um, there's there's lots of, there's three generations of women, friends and family in this book. Um, and it's, a lot of it was exploring that. So all these things, practically, it takes a really, it takes a really long time. Um, but the book I'm writing now, which is the, the second one in this trilogy, uh, is much easier from the point of view of knowing I have the broad arc in my mind when I started writing it. Um, and I have a lot of the characters, though not all. Um, and so that, that helps, but it takes a really long time. I think of it as a kind of layering, layering up of ideas and collecting. It's almost like I have a, a big box and I'm just kind of collecting things that go in there um, and gradually, you know, gradually the thing emerges. But there's always two or three moments um, in, the course of a, in the course of a book where I think, Oh, yes. It's normally when I get really stuck and I think, oh, my God, what have I done? I've just written myself down a blind alley. And then you know, I have about five or six days of being extremely fractious and hard to live with. And then I'll be just walking down the street and go, oh, that's <laughs> the answer. And it, it kind of pivots the book. One of the things I, I am particularly enjoying about this, this uh, process is that I know her very deeply but she doesn't know herself that well so that's she is kind of discovering her herself as she um as she goes along i think she's it's almost as if she's been so busy for the last uh, for the last 13 years since she had her daughter and that she she she's not a very emotionally self-aware person um and she gets people wrong all the time and over the course of this trilogy um she kind of learns to read people better and to accept other people and to accept herself as well so the uh, part of the that's the kind of emotional and intellectual journey for her in this in this book and that's fun to write because that's that's 
I, I know her very well, but um, I'm kind of writing her into an understanding of herself. <laughs> uh, making the move to procedural uh, police crime, uh, th- there are certain plot points that I, I would imagine you need to hit as an author. For, for fans of uh, crime and thrillers mm. as a genre, they expect certain things to be mm. in, in, a, in a book. How much did that influence your telling of this story? Knowing what almost needed to be in there? Um, shockingly, not very much. Um, I think because I'm a big crime reader and uh, crime watcher, those things are kind of intrinsically kind of in my understanding of what makes a satisfying crime novel. But I didn't consciously think about what um, what needed to be in there in terms of kind of what the genre expects. I just thought about what would make a satisfying crime story um and uh that sounds perhaps a little naive but uh that was my uh, that was my that was my thinking i knew um some of the some of the writers whose plotting i i really admire i mean yonesbo for example he's an extraordinary plotter just amazing um and I'm reading Harry Potter to my to my daughter at the moment, and I I really take my hat off to J.K. Rowling too. There's uh, the plotting is so web-like and intricate, it's fantastic. Um, and I wanted to I wanted to be able to um, structure something that was as satisfying on a crime level as those. But so I did I did plot the crimes and the interweaving of the strands very carefully. But uh, yes, perhaps I need to think more about genre. But I didn't want to write a purely genre book, so I didn't set off with a purely genre framework in mind. It's kind of a an awkward crossbreed. <laughs> um, so, how many five novels in now? Mm. Five novels in. Um, I usually ask this question to authors who had thirty novels in. Yeah. Uh, how much has your process? And the way you tell stories changed since your first novel. A lot, I think. Um, I think when I started writing, I was really, I just went by instinct. Now I com- combine that with a much more structured intellectual approach to it. And as I said, I I think about you know what would make a really satisfying story and concentrate on. I always have the reader now foremost in my mind was before I think when I when I started I I had an idea of how you told a story um I think just the level having spent I dread to think how long now uh 15 16 17 years doing it your your craft and skill levels Mm. improve and I the more the more I go on with writing I the more I come to an appreciation of how much of it is about leaving things out as much as putting them in um and that is uh that that's a kind of a skill that i have definitely got much much better at my book's getting shorter and shorter actually this is uh, so i'm obviously i will get to the point soon where i'll be a word per chapter but um no it is it is true and i think that one of the things that i've learned is kind of trusting readers to kind of imply and get it and I love it when I love it when other writers do that just kind of trust your reader to read between the lines it's really satisfying reading and that's that's something that I'm aiming at
that's it for this week's writer's routine thank you so much to lucy whitehouse for sparing the time to chat to me while she was over here from brooklyn you can learn loads more about her new book and get more tips from other writers right now on our website it's writersroutine.com now next week uh, we're chatting to an international best-selling writer sold millions of copies all around the world uh, another author that i managed to spend some time with while he was over from america you can hear from jeffrey diva next week on the show we'll talk about his brand new book the never game now if you've enjoyed the show if you'd like other aspiring writers to get the help and advice from our authors just like you have please do leave a review for the show over on apple podcasts that'll help other people find us Uh, also subscribe to us if you're on there and, and please do subscribe however you listen to the show if that's google if it's spotify that will just really help people that need our help find our help uh, you can also give us a follow on twitter and instagram it's writers pod on twitter and we're writers routine on instagram then you'll get pretty much daily motivational quotes and insights that i've managed to piece and jazz together from some of the favorite authors that we've had on the show uh, yes i will see you next week where we'll have international bestseller jeffrey diva on the show thanks for listening i'll see you next week bye Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.